You want to know the secret to surviving air travel? After you get where you're going, take off your shoes and your socks, then you walk around on the rug barefoot and make fists with your toes. Welcome to the McCoy Arcade Podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Biggs. And just like that, Biggs, my friend, my partner in both podcasting and in life <laughs> for the last 40 plus years, it's that magical time of year. Time once again for the annual McQuaid Arcade Holiday Special. As you can clearly hear by the <laughs> traditional generic royalty-free Christmas music that we like to play here. Uh, I mean, it's kind of Christmas music, right? It, it sure sounds like Christmas music. It does, kind of. It's it's Chris Mish music, uh, and it's how we convey the joy of the season without having to be worried about being issued a, a cease and desist letter by anyone. <laughs> Last year we did okay. That's enough of that. Uh, a big thank you to the to the good folks at. Music that won't get you sued.com for that festive <laughs> clip. Last year, for our holiday episode, we did a show about one of our favorite childhood Christmas traditions, the Sears Wishbook Catalog, and it's one of our all-time favorite episodes of the show. Be sure to check it out if you haven't yet. This year, we thought we'd cozy on up to the fire and talk about one of our favorite movies to watch this magical time of year. Growing up, there were always so many Christmas movies that were on every year. Usually, they were like feature special feature presentations from one of the big three TV networks. There was stuff like Rudolph and Frosty, the Charlie Brown Christmas special, which I honestly always found kind of depressing. That just sad, awful tree he had, but we watched it every year regardless. <laughs> My favorite has always been Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, which came out in 1980, I believe. A little lesser known than a lot of the other ones, but I just love it. Uh, it's by Jim Henson. And it features these great Muppet characters. And as you know, I do love Muppets. What would you say is your favorite traditional Christmas movie picks? Well, at the risk of sounding boringly conventional, I've always been partial to the 1946 classic, It's a Wonderful Life. But that movie, like the one we're about to discuss, is also notable for being a little bit controversial in its status as a Christmas movie at all. In fact, a 2018 article in Forbes vehemently argued that the majority of It's a Wonderful Life isn't even set during Christmas, and that most of the film has nothing to do with Christmas. It's a Wonderful Life has attempted suicide, financial fraud, inequality, a man refusing to give a woman her clothes back after she accidentally loses them in public, child death, an adult beating a child as his ear bleeds, <laughs> war deaths, and reinforcement of the notion the poor and working class should accept their lot in life and accept responsibility to pay off the unfortunate outcomes of financial graft and the banking system, unquote. Nothing says Merry Christmas quite like beating a child about the ear until it's bloody. <laughs> yeah, It's a Wonderful Life is definitely an unconventional Christmas movie, to be sure. Just like, as you said, the one we're talking about in this episode. I mean, look. Uh, full disclosure here, we're really just using the whole Christmas episode theme as an excuse to discuss one of our all-time favorite movies before we wrap up our second season of the show here, but we do maintain that it is, in fact, a Christmas movie, and that movie, of course, is Die Hard, the 1988 action thriller starring then-TV star Bruce Willis. Mm. I saw a funny tweet the other day about this movie, all the debate 
that we're going to talk about as to whether or not it's a Christmas movie. And somebody basically said he spends the entire movie sneaking around, avoiding Alan Rickman. So technically it's a Harry Potter movie, not a Christmas movie. <laughs> it's the broader Harry Potter universe. Remarkable. His casting, Bruce Willis's casting was apparently kind of controversial. People doubted his ability to carry a big budget blockbuster like this. The two giants of 80s action that we've talked about on the show before, Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger, had both turned down this part, the part of New York cop John McClane. And I think that's exactly why this movie ended up being as perfect an action movie as it is. This was a hero that felt real, right? Not some unstoppable machine gun wielding killing machine like we saw in so many of Sly and Arnold's movies. Totally. There's that scene where he stares down from the roof of the Nakatomi building preparing to jump, and he looks genuinely terrified. His wisecrack really humanizes him and makes the film and makes him relatable to us. He says, I promise I'll never even think about going up in a tall building again. <laughs> My wife sent me a great article from CNN about how even the way he dresses his, you know, iconic tank top undershirt that he wears that starts out white but ends up like a gross, just greenish brown by the end of the movie. Even that sets him apart as a hero. The author of the article, Megan C. Hill, writes, The deliberately simple outfit was a far cry from the tactical gear worn by Colonel John Matrix in Commando or the impeccable suits favored by James Bond. Instead, McLean, wearing a basic item found in most people's closets, represented the everyday Joe thrown into an extraordinary situation. Which is so true, right? He's totally unprepared for the situation he's in, like any of us would be, unlike John Matrix, uh, Arnold's character in Commando. In fact, in that movie, in Commando, we get a, an entire montage of Arnold suiting up with all of his gear and weapons showing us just how prepared he is. It's the total opposite mm. of what we see here with John McClane. Mm -hmm. A funny connection between those two movies, there's, there's a Hollywood legend that Die Hard actually started out as Commando 2, which is totally untrue. In an interview with Bristol Bad Film Club, Writer Stephen D'Souza cleared up that rumor. He says, no, 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 and no. I don't know how this story started on the internet. It's completely wrong. Die Hard is based on a novel called Nothing Lasts Forever by the author Roderick Thorpe, which is a sequel to his earlier book, The Detective. He goes on to explain that in, that, uh, in the movie, based on that book, John McClane was played by Frank Sinatra, and they actually had to like offer Sinatra the role of John McClane in Die Hard but uh, he turned it down, saying, I'm too old and too rich to act anymore. So we got, uh, we got Bruce Willis in that role instead. Thankfully. Yeah. I want to see this movie starring an old Frank Sinatra instead now. <laughs> I remember when the whole Die Hard is a Christmas movie thing, the debate started, or at least when I became aware of it, which was probably about 15 years ago. And back then, it was just, you know, just kind of a funny observation that made a lot of sense. But now... Wow. Like people have really strong feelings about this subject. I'm in a bunch of 80s and like Gen X nostalgia groups on Facebook and posting what should be just funny throwaway memes about Die Hard being a Christmas movie. It always gets crazy. They get shut down by like the administrators. <laughs> um, very strong feelings on both sides of the debate. The biggest case for Die Hard as a Christmas movie isn't just all of the Christmas trappings, right? Which don't get me wrong, are, are a big part of the movie's appeal. There's a great AV Club article. So many people have written about this called Die Hard Works Because It's Only Christmas Adjacent. And the author, Zach Handlin, calls the movie, quote, seasonally appropriate, but not gratingly festive. And he's right. And for that reason, you can really enjoy it anytime. And that's because it's not a movie about Christmas. He writes, quote, holiday entertain entertainment tends to have the single-minded fixation of the truly obsessed, <laughs> like getting cornered by an old friend who only wants to talk about his kids. 
There might be other things worth mentioning, but that bastard has an iPhone full of awkward video clips and you're going to endure them all. That's so good. So, it's not all of the, the Christmas adjacent elements, the music, the decorations that make Die Hard a Christmas movie. It's the fact that the entire movie happens because it's Christmas. For example, the movie opens with John McClane landing in New York or landing in L.A. from New York to meet his estranged wife, Holly, at her work Christmas party. As you heard at the start of this episode, one of our favorite and most quoted lines from this film happens in the opening moments when John McClane's seatmate spontaneously offers some bizarre yet timeless <laughs> advice. He talks about taking off his, your shoes and, and socks and walking around on the rug barefoot and making fists with your toes. Fists with your toes. It's kind of brilliant because this is the seed that was planted for the reason he ends up barefoot for the duration of the film. Yes, it is a great example of an effective setup and payoff in a movie. And there are so many of them in this movie. It's one of the things that make it great. Uh, and the whole thing just serves to reinforce, again, just how vulnerable a person really would be in a situation like this. This movie may have taught us one of the most important lessons of our lives. If stuff ever goes down, like the first thing you do is put your shoes on. You make sure you have your shoes. <laughs> I mean, think of how much it would suck being in John McClane's position. I mean, in general, but then, you know, without any shoes, um, he spends a lot of the movie in unfinished under construction sections of the building and then like back maintenance areas and uh, air ducts. And every time I watch the movie, I, I think about how treacherous that would be there. They have to be like nails and screws everywhere. It's true. I will point out, however, how clean and spacious the air ducts <laughs> yes. were. Maybe it's because it's a new building, but I would argue that if anything, that I imagine the ducts would be a mess with all the construction dust that was ongoing. Yeah. As we've said so many times before, the movies we grew up loving had this amazing ability to establish characters so quickly and so effectively, and Die Hard is no different within a few minutes of John's arrival at Nakatomi, where his wife Holly works. We get a very clear picture of the state of their marriage, what drove them apart. John tries to look up Holly McLean in the super high-tech touchscreen office directory in the building's lobby, only to realize that she's now <laughs> going by her maiden name, Gennaro. And then when John and Holly meet, they're arguing within seconds, and we get even more of these great setups that are going to pay off later in the story. Ellis, who's maybe the best character in the movie, right? Booby. <laughs> he's, he's right on the edge of being over the top, but that's why the fact that he pulls it off, that's why we love him so much. Right. He uh, tells Holly to show John the Rolex watch they gave her. And it's that watch that ends up saving her life at the end of the movie when Hans takes his iconic slow-mo fall off the top of the tower. Speaking of Hans, this movie gives us one of the greatest movie bad guys of all time and introduced us all to the genius of Alan Rickman. This was his first movie role. He plays Hans Gruber, who we are initially led to believe is a terrorist, but is actually a criminal mastermind who has a plan to steal the $640 million in negotiable bearer bonds in the Nakatomi Tower vault. And he's there at the Nakatomi Tower to steal them because it's Christmas Eve. Again, the entire premise of this movie revolves around the fact that it takes place at Christmas time. The building is shut down. There's minimal security. And because it's the night of the corporate Christmas party, a bunch of hostages will be in a single room on a single floor, including President Joseph Yoshinobu Takagi, the man who can help Hans get into the vault. Not that Professor Snape would need it. No. <laughs> I think you're confusing characters now. No, no, he's Professor Snape playing the role of Hans Gruber for this particular job. Now we need some diehard Harry Potter fan uh, crossover fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> the whole movie is a big game of cat and mouse between John and Hans as John tries to avoid the bad guys while piecing together Hans's plan. He's got a friend on the outside, Sergeant Al Powell, played by Reginald Vell Johnson, who was also in Ghostbusters and Turner and Hooch and the show Family Matters and a bunch of other stuff. 
Fun fact, he was in the movie Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. Remember that uh, classic? Timeless classic. <laughs> and he was credited under his <laughs> stage name, Ivory Ocean. Now that's a stage name. That's the best name. That's so good. Although his his given name is so spectacular too, Reginald Vell Johnson. Oh, it's great. It's amazing. Yep. Well, speaking of Reginald Vell Johnson, Powell is just fantastic. He's cool. He's down to earth. He's street smart, but he's innocent all at the same time. Mm. We get so many great lines, but knowing the ingredients of the Twinkie offhand <laughs> sums him up nicely. Just everything a growing boy needs. <laughs> And the bond that these two guys form over the the walkie-talkie throughout the course of the movie is so cool. And it feels so real, even though John doesn't want to reveal anything about his identity because Hans, who was always assumed to be listening in, could figure out that one of the hostages, Holly, is the wife of the guy who keeps ruining all his plans. Hans ends up seeing that family photo in Holly's office that she put down, face down out of frustration, and realizes who John is. Holly's great. She's played so well by Bonnie Bedelia. There is this moment, again, that really demonstrates their connection and adds so much depth to the characters without saying too many things, right? There's that scene where the terrorist Carl smashes up the bar enraged, and Holly looks up and says, he's still alive. Only John could drive somebody that crazy. It's brilliant. There's another great moment when she goes to talk to Hans, who sort of set up shop in her office, uh, and he's like, what idiot put you in charge? And she says, you did when you killed my boss. And... She makes some requests like bathroom breaks and a couch for a pregnant employee to lie on. And Alan Rickman does such a good job of acting, pretending as the character, right? He does such a great job of pretending to be a terrorist with some moral agenda who's holding hostages when he's just robbing the place and he's planning to blow everyone on the building up just to cover his escape. Uh, The way he has everything figured out, it's genius. He knows exactly how the FBI will react to everything he does as soon as they show up, including ultimately cutting the power to the building and giving him access to the vault. The FBI guys, Agent Johnson and Special Agent Johnson, no relation, are hilarious. I wonder if Professor Snape has the Marauder's map, and that's how he does so well. (laughs) Yes, those guys are so funny. The older agent, played by the great Robert Davi, from Goonies fame for for our world, clearly relishing the adventure, yells, Just like effing Saigon, eh, Slick? To which the younger guy replies, I was in junior high, dickhead. That's the greatest line. There's so many other funny, just brilliant little moments in this movie. It's hilarious. There's a quiet moment between waves of action when one of the terrorists is getting his weapons ready on top of like a little storefront cabinet. He looks around furtively. Then he reaches in and steals a candy bar. It's this little tiny moment, but it's hilarious. Yes. And that's Al Leong, arguably the the greatest movie henchman ever. Hench. <laughs> He's awesome. He's instantly recognizable. And between acting and stunt work, he has been in over like a hundred movies. Um, yeah, such a funny little moment that they didn't have to put in, but they did. And it was just genius. Oh, and then once the hostage crisis at Nakatomi makes the news... There's the whole hilarious talk news segment with the the author. See, this is one of those kind of pieces that I never, ever paid attention to, to before. When I was younger, I think I just kind of thought this was background. But this time on the rewatch, I could not stop laughing at, at the spot on portrait of an 80s news segment, complete with the expert, a Dr. Hasseldorf, shilling his book, no less. <laughs> his book has got the greatest title, Hostage Terrorist 
terrorist hostage. I fell off the couch <laughs> laughing. It just, it's so perfectly encapsulates this concept of the, of the 80s news segment with the expert. And when, when the author mentions Helsinki syndrome, Harvey, the news anchor guy, <laughs> turns and looks at the camera and says, as in Helsinki, Sweden. Honestly, this is something else I totally missed. Like, I just was like so confused. But, you know, right now, now I get it. They're riffing on Stockholm syndrome, right? That's the the condition where the hostages connect with and even like grow to love and defend their captors. But it's just silly and shows, really shows you that this is a brilliantly written comedy with all these funny lines. Yes, it is brilliant. So many little funny, genuinely funny moments and lines in this movie, which is extra impressive when you also consider the fact that this is not just a, a brilliant comedy, but arguably the greatest action movie ever made with so many amazing action scenes. The scene where Hans realizes that McLean has no shoes or socks on is remarkable. He first says it in German, Karl, scheiß dem Fenster. And then Carl looks back at him blankly, and then he says, shoot the glass. It's a real insight because it does tremendous collateral damage to poor shoeless Bruce Willie. Does Carl not speak German? I don't know. I like that he had to repeat himself in English. That was for us. They didn't have to use subtitles. But yes, it's an absolutely great moment. The fights. The fights are really pretty brutal. Right from the very first one between John and Tony in that unfinished under construction floor of the building. Yes, and I feel like the real turning point in the movie where it starts to have that exciting energy of a real revenge picture is when McLean kills Tony Vresky after that long, brutal fight. He decides to send a message to Hans by writing on his sweatshirt and sending him down the elevator with that Santa Claus hat. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, 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 read by Hans in that deadpan way. It's absolutely genius and clearly underscores this is a Christmas film, no? Ho. Oh, <laughs> it's so good. That fight is also awesome because we see John McClane's sort of superpower. We see just how observant of a detective he is. He kills Tony and then thinks to check the label on his sweater. He checks his clothing label and his driver's license and realizes that something's off. He's wearing this European brand and smoking European cigarettes. It has this California driver's license in his wallet. And then he tries to put on his shoes, which are way too small. And we get the great line. Nine million terrorists in the world, and I got to kill the one with feet smaller than my sister. <laughs> Poor John. He just wants some shoes, and Tony's got these tiny little, tiny little loafers he's trying to squeeze into. Then there's the fight with Tony's brother, Carl, which is even more intense and ends with Carl being hung by the neck from that giant chain, and we think he's dead. Then at the end of the movie, in the film's final payoff, again, it's a movie just full of setups and payoffs. When Holly and John are leaving the building, and John and Al Powell meet in person for the first time, the not so dead after all, Carl comes out and is about to kill John and Holly when they're saved by Al Powell, who tells John earlier in the movie over the walkie-talkie that he chose a desk job because he accidentally killed a kid, shot him when the kid was, was holding a toy ray gun, but he ends up being the one to shoot Carl and uh, save John and Holly. And then we get to see Holly punch the sleazy reporter Thornburg in the face, and he's played brilliantly by William Atherton, who we recently talked about in our episode about the movie Real Genius. Between that movie, this one, and Ghostbusters, he scores a perfect 80s movie jerk trifecta. He is just <laughs> perfect in all three of these very similar but distinct roles.
Let's talk a little bit about the music and the soundtrack. There is this incredibly thoughtful and really wonderful YouTube video by Howard Ho about the music of Die Hard, and it is truly worth a watch. He talks about the overarching theme of the movie, and I think this was really insightful. John has to get his marriage back together by getting himself under control, and how the score supports this Christmas journey. First, he points out the sleigh bells present in the main title theme, so we get to hear that initially from the very moment we meet the character. He also notes that as Powell is buying the Twinkies for presumably his pregnant wife, he's humming along to let it snow. When he gets into the car with Argyle, John McClane asks, don't you got any Christmas music? To which our beloved Argyle replies, this is Christmas music. (laughs) It's the greatest thing. And then finally, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, including perhaps its most famous portion, Ode to Joy, is featured extensively throughout the film. And going back and watching this YouTube video, I was just amazed and astounded by how much this has influenced not only the score, but also seems to be connected to the actual overarching narrative of the film. And this is kind of one of these incredible synergies of music and cinematography and actors. It all comes together in this wonderful, wonderful mixture. Each movement is incredibly different to Beethoven's Ninth, and it climaxes in that fourth movement where we get the most bombastic and the really familiar parts, including the the Ode to Joy chorus part, right? With the which is of course the classic Christmas song, "Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee." That is actually words based on that part of the music. So this is a lot of connections here, a lot of Christmas connections as well. Now, Michael Kamen was the composer and is a really interesting guy. Worked on lots of different movies with tons of different musicians and. And interestingly, though, it was the director, John McTiernan, who came up with using Beethoven's Ninth because the original script apparently called for something by Wagner. So in the big crescendo moment, the ode to joy actually comes on the choral portion when they open that seventh lock to the vault, at which point Theo says, Merry Christmas. One more thing before we move on from the music, the scene where Al Powell shoots Carl and saves the day. That is an incredible scene, and the music is actually really different and really weird. It turns out it's not from Michael Kamen at all. It's actually an unused piece of score from James Horner's Aliens soundtrack. Wow. It's very strange, but it works to make it seem really different and kind of otherworldly and special. And let's not forget that then the film closes with Let It Snow, punctuating a musically perfect Christmas movie. Die Hard is cinematic comfort food. It's like the traditional holiday meals we adjo- we enjoy here in America, at least. Turkey, stuffing, cranberry sauce, green bean casserole. It's all associated with the holidays, but it would be absolutely delicious any day of the year. It's also on our short list of pretty perfect movies, right? Mm-hmm. Movies that very effectively and efficiently do exactly what they set out to do in a way that anyone has yet to top And I would argue that as an action comedy, Die Hard has yet to be topped. Is it a Christmas movie? We think so. Not just for the reasons we've already mentioned. The fact that Christmas is central to the plot, the Christmas trimmings, like so many delicious side dishes. But because at its core, Die Hard is a story about a man admitting to his mistakes and asking for forgiveness for them and promising to do better. It's basically a Christmas carol, if you think about it, right? just with more explosions, and <laughs> instead of Tiny Tim, we get a German terrorist with tiny feet. <laughs> From both of us, we wish you a Merry Christmas, dear listener, and thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. We'll be back with more of our favorite stuff from the 80s and beyond in 2022, right here on McQuaid Arcade.
The everyman hero archetype is perhaps the most Hollywood of them all, and Die Hard may be the most perfect embodiment of this idea. I love the way Graham Daisler from Bright Lights Film Journal put it, quote, For all the blood that gets spilled, Die Hard is essentially a joyous film, beginning with a lover's quarrel and concluding with their kiss. Sure, it's daft and silly, full of gunfights, explosions, and 80s pop references, but the pleasure of it is timeless, unquote. Die Hard has something for everybody, or as Powell put it, sugar and rich flour, partially hydrogenated vegetable oil, polysorbate 60, and yellow dye number 5. Just everything a growing boy needs. I think we should close on some of the lyrics from Run DMC's brilliant Christmas and Hollis, perhaps made even more legendary by Argyle setting the tone of the film with it early on. The time is now, the place is here, and the whole wide world is filled with cheer. So open your eyes, lend us an ear. We want to say Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And on that note, stay limber. For more fun from the 80s and beyond, be sure to follow at McQuaid Arcade on social media and sign up for our newsletter at McQuaidArcade.com. McQuaid Arcade is a McQuaid Media Production. There's really only one glaring plot hole, and it's at the very end of the film. What's that? When... When Hans is falling off the building, I guess Professor Snape didn't have his Nimbus 2000. (laughs) 